Sometimes when you sense a call to ministry, it can feel like you just don't want it to fit inside somebody else's box. Have any of you ever felt that way, that you sense a call to live a Christian life, but you don't want it to fit inside someone else's box? Anybody feel that way? A few people kind of nod their head. <laughs> there, is, uh, there are local heroes in the Boston area, and sometimes we encounter them. There was a course that we led in 2015 called Ministry Amidst Human Trafficking. And in the midst of that course, uh, we encountered various leaders uh, here in the Boston area doing things, living out the life uh, many of us imagine, the life that many of us read about and wonder if we would ever meet someone like that. Bonnie Gatchell, our speaker today, is someone who is extremely inspiring simply by living out the call that God has placed on her life. Let me just read a little bit about her to you. Uh, Bonnie Gatchell is the director of Route One Ministry, which she co-founded in 2010 under the auspices of a local church. Uh, By way of Michigan and the Dominican Republic, where she worked at a school with youth uh, who who can often be considered at risk, Um, Bonnie came to Boston in 2006 to pursue a Master of Divinity at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. In 2009, Bonnie won the Distinguished Donald Wells Award for Justice and Preaching. Uh, There's a whole lot here. but let me, let me say this. Uh, her life embodies uh, our hope of what it means when we say we're a part of the church. And uh, she's being recognized in the area and by various uh, organizations as a speaker worth listening to. And I just ask that you give her your attention. And uh, before she speaks, could you just give her a welcome? Thank you. I actually did my undergrad at a liberal arts school, a Christian liberal arts school in Michigan, and had to attend chapel as well. I don't know if chapel is mandatory here. Yeah, I would guess by the attendance that it is. No, um, that's just how it rolls. But it was good. And I remember walking away challenged from several chapel speakers. This morning, though, I want to start by telling you a story. I want to tell you a story of Teresa. And Teresa is 15 years old when our story begins. And Teresa was raised in a Christian home. She has two parents who love her, parents who love her siblings and one each other. Teresa loves playing volleyball. She grows up in the suburbs, a very wealthy white community, in fact. Teresa has siblings that she fights with. Does this sound familiar to anyone? It it definitely, good. Does it sound familiar to anyone? Yeah, it sounded familiar to me. And one day when Teresa is at her public high school, where she makes straight A's, a cute boy offers her a ride home. And Teresa, without hesitation, takes that ride home. Why wouldn't she? He's cute. She's 15. He's her classmate. So they meet after school, and they make their way through the suburbs, and as they arrive, she's a little nervous because they have come to his house, not her house. And she can tell there's not parents at home, and she knows she probably shouldn't go inside. But he says to her very apologetically, Teresa, I'm so sorry. I am so sorry. I forgot my football gear inside. 
if, but don't wait out here. I don't want you to wait in the car. Come on in. I'll give you a cold soda, and then we'll be on our way. I, I hope I don't keep you from anything. So Teresa reluctantly goes inside, and she sips on that cold soda. And then she wakes up about two hours later, and she's bruised and bleeding, and she had been raped. And Teresa, filled with shame, embarrassment, confusion, gathers her clothes, gets dressed, and immediately decides she's not going to tell anyone what has happened. Not her parents, not her friends, not her teachers. And Teresa goes home, and she stuffs those clothes into the washer. And she showers and goes to school the next day like nothing happened. And the boy finds her. And he says to her, Teresa, I am so sorry about what happened. Let me apologize. Meet me at my, sc- my car after school. And Teresa is furious, as she should be. But she meets him after school because she wants to hear this apology. And as they meet, he says to her, Teresa, I'm sorry. But uh, my cousin found out about what happened. And he says that unless you sleep with him, He's going to tell everybody what kind of girl you are. And Teresa refuses, of course. And then they go back and forth. And then the boy pulls out of his back pocket, one after another after another. Polaroids. Someone had been above them taking pictures of the event. And from the pictures, the sex looks consensual. And not only that, but it's an instant reminder of the trauma that she just faced. So very reluctantly, Teresa agrees to sleep with the cousin to get the pictures back. And this is the plan. She's going to go home like nothing happened. She's going to do her chores like normal. She'll wait a phone call. She'll sneak out. And this boy will drive her to a location where she sleeps with the cousin. And she does this. And, of course, the cousin does not give the pictures back. But for the next two years, Teresa repeats this system of exploitation. She goes home. She does her chores. She goes to bed. She receives a phone call. She sneaks out. And this boy takes her to different locations where she is raped and sold and resold. Teresa is an American girl who was exploited on American soil. And just to give us a timeline of when this takes place, this is 1968, which means that American girls have been exploited on American soil for a long time. And it's not a new phenomenon. It's simply that we're just now paying attention. Teresa didn't plan to be raped. She didn't plan to be exploited. But what kept her there? What kept her in this system of exploitation? Because she wasn't locked behind a door with a key, right? She wasn't tied to a radiator. So what kept Teresa in the system? Fear, shame, feeling guilty maybe. Yeah, how do I get out now that I've done this? Fear, shame, abuse. Those are the things that keep Teresa in this system of exploitation. 
And as I heard Teresa's story, I began to think about other girls and women who are exploited in America on American soil. And I thought, the same way that Teresa didn't plan to be raped, no little girl plans to work at a strip club when she grows up. And so I began to think more about women in the sex industry and how they're being exploited. And I'm an oral processor. I don't know if there's other oral processors in the room, but to be an oral processor, what does it mean when you're thinking and processing things? What do you have to do? Yeah, you have to talk about it. You have to talk to your friends about it, maybe to the point that you drive them crazy. So I gathered a couple of my friends, and we had coffee. And we talked about exploitation, and we talked about it in the foreign and domestic. And my friend actually asked the question, what do we do to reach girls who are locally exploited? And the answer was given, make baskets and take it to strippers working on Christmas Eve. And I thought, I could do that. And I didn't think at that time I was starting a ministry. I thought at that time I could do this one-time event on Christmas Eve and it would be good to go. So I Googled strip clubs near my church. I was at Starbucks. Then I thought maybe that was a bad idea. So <laughs> I reduced down my screen and... But I found a strip club. I called the manager and I said, we want to bring baskets on Christmas Eve. How many women do you have working there? And he said 25, and that would be fine. But he wanted to know what was going to go in the baskets. And what we put in the baskets was just fun, girly items. We didn't put tracks. We didn't put Bibles. Because we wanted to remind the women that they were daughters first of the most high king, not objects of men. So we put in there earrings and nail polish. We put those cute socks that you get at Target for $1.50. We put journals. Anything, ladies, that are in your bedroom, but it doesn't go in the need category, but somehow we all have, that's what we put in these baskets. And we delivered them on Christmas Eve. And they were received. The women, some of the women teared up. Others wanted to give us hugs. And some wanted to know how much the baskets cost. And we were able to say they're paid for, which is good news. I am thankful every day that Jesus has paid for things for me, right? Has covered my sin. So right there, an immediate opportunity to share the gospel. It's paid for. You don't owe anything for this. You don't have to do any service for this. It's paid for. And so as we left the strip club, then the question was, how do we connect with this community on a regular basis? I didn't know. <laughs> so again, I Googled. And I found this woman in Kentucky who takes hot homemade meals into 14 different strip clubs. So I drove to Kentucky, and I shadowed her. And there I was, right, 30 years old, a Master's of Divinity graduate from Gordon-Conwell, standing in my first strip club. And this was not my plan. I was not going to go into strip clubs. But there I was. And I met my first stripper, and she was 62 years old. Yep, that's what I said, <laughs> but with my eyes. And she had everything that came with being 62. She was a grandmother. She had C-section scars, and the skin under her arm was a little more loose. And she had crow's feet, right? And she, like Teresa, did not plan on working in the strip club her whole life. She had an abusive family. 
She thought, I'll work one summer, one summer. I'll make a lot of money, and then I can leave this abusive situation. But here she was, 62, still there, and her daughter worked there with her. So as I left the strip club, I realized that if I wanted to reach women exploited, I had to go into the strip club. I had to know women exploited. And so I did some research, and I found that this 62-year-old looked more like women in the strip clubs than what media and movies have told me, right? Because I didn't know that 90% of women who work in the sex industry have been sexually abused under the age of 18. And the national average is 25 to 35%, right? But if you were to ask 100 stay-at-home moms 100 female lawyers, 100 female teachers, you wouldn't find 90 in any of those categories, 90%. I didn't know that the age range for women who worked in the sex industry was 14 to 62. And I now have seen both multiple times. And I had this belief that women who worked in the sex industry made lots of money but the truth is, they have to pay to be there. Some strip clubs ask them to pay a flat fee of $75 a night to perform. Other strip clubs take a part of their tips off the top. In addition to paying this fee, they have to pay the bouncer, the managers, and the DJs for the services they receive. One girl told us that she made $35 in an eight-hour day. $35, that's what she went home with. Another dancer who wrote in her book, Scars and Stilettos, said that she did make $10,000 in one day. But when she got home, her boyfriend needed $10,000. And to this day, she doesn't know what for. And she gave it to him because she was stuck in this system of exploitation. What if I don't? It'll be worse if I don't. So the truth is that everyone is making money off of the women except for the women. And these are some pretty daunting statistics, but I, let me tell you a statistic of hope. And that is that the number one reason a woman leaves the sex industry is through a trusting relationship encouraging her to do so. And I thought, why not me? And why not teams of Christian women who can go into strip clubs and hang out with them and befriend them and then encourage them when they're ready to leave. And I wanted to make sure that I was on track with this, so I went to the scripture. Does this matter to God? Does this matter? Do these women matter to God? Should it matter to me? And what I found in Genesis 1, and I'll read verses 26 through 28, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and everything that's creeping. And so God created man in his own image. And in the image of God, he created him male and female. So I'll pause there. So God wasn't sitting around bored. He had made male. It's not like he had said, oh, I've made male and now I'm done with men. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make some females. No, right here in this text, it says, in that moment, God created both male and female to reflect his image. Every single girl 
in the strip club is made in the image of God, right? And because she is so, then she matters to God. And the women who work there matter to God. And if we go on, it says, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Okay, so this is a little trickier because I would bet that most people in this room are single, but maybe the married people can help us out. I'm single also. What does it mean to be fruitful and multiply? Have babies. How do I have babies? I hear, thank you. Yes. I heard, yes. Brave soul. Okay, sex. God created humans, and then he gives those humans a blueprint to reproduce more image bearers, and that's through sex. And sex comes before the fall. Sex is not dirty. Sex is not evil. Sex is good, but sex is good within this covenant that God has created. So anytime sex happens outside of marriage, it's broken sexuality. So when women sell their bodies for sex, that's broken sexuality. And when men purchase women for sex, that's broken sexuality. And so it matters to God because it's operating outside his original design. So this is what I see in Genesis. But I went on further, make sure I'm convinced, make sure I have solid foundation. And I found in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 2, it says, and this is the NIV, that the poor and the rich have this in common. God is the creator of them both. Right? God is the creator of them both. And sure, the writer of Proverbs was talking about wealth, financial wealth. But now that Jesus has come onto the scene, I know I am rich because I know Jesus. And those who don't know Jesus are created also. And so it's responsible for me who knows Jesus, for us who are rich, who know Jesus, to bring that wealth to the poor, right? So I feel it's important to God. And those who live in poverty financially and those who live in wealth matter to God because he is the creator of them both. And I'm also reminded of the Old Testament where God, God's people is Israel, right? And he loves Israel. And he desires for Israel to reflect him in everyday life and to care for the poor, for the sojourner, for the foreigner, for the oppressed, for the fatherless. But Israel, they fail all the time. And I'm glad we don't have anything in common with Israel. <laughs> but um, God says to them one time when they're really doing a poor job of caring for the poor, the oppressed, and the widow, he says to them, don't forget that you were once slaves in Egypt. I was once a slave in Egypt. All of us who know Jesus, before that, we were slaves in Egypt. Current time, the women who work in the sex industry and the men who buy them are all slaves in Egypt. And I can't forget and lack being thankful for how God has brought me up out of Egypt into a land flowing with milk and honey. This is important to God because it says in John 3.16 that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The whosoever there 
is the pastor's wife and the stripper. It matters to God. And the number one reason that women leave the sex industry is through a trusting relationship. So this is what Route One does. This is what our ministry does. We train teams of women to go into strip clubs and meet with women who work there and build relationships. And at first, the women were skeptical. And one time, I think the women, the dancers told me they thought that we were there to apply for jobs. (laughs) But um, I don't know how to take that compliment. I don't know. But at first, they were skeptical. But now... We have volunteers leaving their clients and running to greet us at the door, pulling us into the dressing room because they want to share their week with us. We've been invited to their kids' birthday parties, which we've attended. We've helped them prepare for interviews, apply for affordable child care, and and all these things are exciting to me. But my favorite is when we walk into a club and there's a girl upside down on the pole and she stops mid-act to wave and say, hey, ladies, hold on a second. I want to talk to you before you leave. That's a good moment for us. That's a connection. So we continue to go in and just be present, just to be the light of Christ, because nobody plans to be exploited. I thank you for your time. And as I went into my first strip club, this woman told me the story about how to get into some strip clubs, they do makeup for the girls. And then this led to them doing pedicures for the girls. And as the woman who leads this ministry in Kentucky told me, they were doing these pedicures. And she got down on her hands and knees, and she washed this dancer's broken, bleeding, and bruised feet on this dirty strip club floor. And as I heard that story... That's kind of what did it for me, because I remember Jesus getting down on a dirty floor and washing his disciples' feet, and I thought, how much more of the gospel could you possibly have? Each one of you has a call on your life, and it will not be to go into strip clubs necessarily, but it will be to be the light, the best light that you can be wherever it is that God is sending you. May it be staying at home with your family. May it be being a doctor, a lawyer, a pastor, working for a Christian liberal arts college, or going into strip clubs. That is your call. And you are asked to treasure that call and to be good stewards of your call. But also find courage in knowing that God has called you. So no one can take that call from you. Thank you so much. Let me pray. Thank you. God, I thank you so much that you um, pulled me out of the Mari Clay over and over again. I thank you so much for each and every student that is in this room right now. I thank you that you have made them in your image. I thank you that you call them by name. And for those who are refusing to receive you because their parents sent them to some Christian college and they're angry about it, God, I pray that you would speak to them. I pray that you would soften their hearts. I pray that they would see beyond their parents' choices to a God who is welcoming them with open arms. God, I pray also for the people in this room, according to statistics, who have been sexually abused. 
and those who have never confessed it to anyone and walk around with that burden. May they find someone safe this week to share their story with and to begin that story of healing. We thank you, God, that you are the great physician, that you, being the very nature of God, did not count equality, but instead came to earth and died and was resurrected for us. May your name be praised in each of our lives, in each of our calls, in our studies today as we continue on in our education. Amen.